Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello. Hello. Look who it is. Welcome to 2021, <laughs> folks. Oh, yeah. It's a new year. I forgot. Looks the same. It sure does. I've said this before in a very pessimistic way, but it really is just a social construct. The days (laughs) are really just one after the other. Someone decided that this was a new year. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm here for it. Good riddance 2020. Excited for 2021, hopefully being better. But at the same time, it is really just one day after the other. Listen, this is why you and I are friends. That statement right there. <laughs> this is I my too have been <laughs> ranting about this for years. <laughs> it's I, the only day of the year I can fall asleep early. And oh, I hate New Year's. I hate it. So you specifically go I to bed before New Year's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, see, that's that's a step further than where I'm at. <laughs> This year I didn't. I actually stayed up for it, but it was unintentional. And how was the experience? Did you wish you were sleeping? Yeah. My family like ran into my room and jumped on my bed and I was like, no, no. That's the ultimate curmudgeon move. I know. (laughs) People come at you excited to celebrate and you're like, no, (laughs) no. We had already gotten ready for bed. Everyone was in bed. I was was getting calm. How was your new year? (laughs) (laughs) It was good. I watched uh, Andy Cohen and Anderson Cooper get drunk. And oh, dear. It was a hot mess of a show, and mm. that's my favorite type of television. So <laughs> I enjoyed it. There was one guy who was skiing. It was a reporter reporting live from a ski slope on New Year's, and he had attached a microphone to one of his ski sticks i don't know i don't ski like the little stick that you use to sure push forward walking thing yeah 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 Mm -hmm. and so he had put the microphone on it because he thought it was funny and it you know looked like a long microphone but he kept forgetting that the microphone needed to be near his mouth (laughs) so he would like ski and put the thing down into the snow and then forget that we couldn't hear him and it went on for a few minutes and i don't know just watching things like that live on television is really it's really up my alley i'm so happy that you got to experience that thank you so much you're welcome it it really it was a good start to 2021 that's good (laughs) I'm losing my mind, Maura. (laughs) I know. I love it. I'm losing it. I want to know who today's lady is, please. So I'm actually really excited. She's a fave. Aren't they all? But I know you do say that every time. I do. I know. But they end up being great. So I'm here. And they end up being favorites of mine. Um, So there you go. (laughs) Um, This 
week we were inspired we I was inspired by because Chloe never knows who I pick until I tell her um I was inspired if you're new here that's how this works (laughs) I don't know anything and then I learn and you learn with me it's a beautiful thing um sure I was inspired by Bridgerton the new scandalous Netflix no I must drama you must and then text me the whole time but it one of the main features of that show and the books I've been told is this scandal written by a woman who clearly is using the pseudonym Lady Whistledown. And I love scandal sheets. I think they're fascinating. Do you know what a scandal sheet is? Would you quickly explain? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. No, So a scandal sheet was basically early ephemera. It was a publication done on like a broadside or it was a pamphlet. And it was they would never actually say who they were discussing. Think of it as like a tabloid. But what they would do is they would say, Mrs. B- Miss B was seen entering a garden with Mr. C. And, and oh, kidding. I can imagine what they'd get up to in there. 100%. They were You're kidding. I'm not I kidding. They are phenomenal. I was in a musical by Maria Irene Fornes called Promenade. And there's yes. an entire musical number about that. Oh, that's beautiful. I'll send it to you. Please do. Um, wow, I love that. Yes. So it is It is a phenomenon, and I, I deeply <sighs> love a scandal sheet. Um, and I was really excited that people could see one um, kind of being, being distributed. And so I couldn't really find any women who wrote scandal sheets. Scandal sheets were somewhat short-lived. They they evolved into being collections in normal publications. But like there was one and she had the best name I've ever heard. So I'm just going to mention it now. This is not the person we're talking about, but her name is Mrs. Krakenthorpe. And I just needed to say her name out loud. Um, that was important and I appreciate it. Thank you so much. She published from 1709 to 1710 in a magazine called The Female Tatler. And it was phenomenal, but it was only a year. And then Town and Country Magazine, which is an old publication, has no relation to the one that's currently named that. They were published again for a couple of years. And again, it had like a gossip column. But then I was thinking, okay, who the hell can I talk about who had such a phenomenal grasp on the social mores? And of course, my brain went immediately to the greatest commentator of the kind of late 18th, early 19th century, Jane Austen herself. So that's who we're talking about. Today's person, Jane Austen? Yes. You're kidding. I'm not. Less than 10 minutes ago, I said, this is the time that interests me. I know. Wow. You could have only seen the grin on my face when you said that. We're talking about the one, the only, the we wish she was actually successful in her own time, Jane Austen. Um, I've loved everything to do with Jane Austen because I am a walking cliche since I was very young. Um, (laughs) one of the first things I remember reading was her very sartorial history of England that she wrote Mm. as a child. And I have, just to give you a taste, I know I'll talk about the time she was born and all, but let's just talk about the dedication she calls it the history of England from the reign of Henry IV to the death of Charles I by a partial, prejudiced, and ignorant historian. Nota bene, there will be very few dates in this history. I just wanted to mention that bit because I love that so much. How old was she when she wrote that? Do you know? She was 16. 
it's so quippy and wonderful and exactly how I would imagine I would like to be a writer, which is very conceited of myself, but whatever. I love it. I love her. I think she's hysterical. Um, (laughs) So the one and only Jane Austen was born actually not too, I mean, like not that long ago, meaning date wise. She was born on the 16th of December in 1775. She was born into a ridiculously large family. There were eight kids. And I think about like the fact that that's eight individualized people taking up space and it's a lot. Um, And they all kind of probably look the same. You know what I mean? Um, Sure. (laughs) Pros and cons. Pros and cons. She was born in Steventon in Hampshire. Um, Her dad is a vicar, um, but they weren't very wealthy at all. And in fact, he had multiple other jobs. They ran a boarding school in their home for other boys. And he also was a farmer. So it's very interesting because we think, oh, they already have eight kids. They live in this, the rectory. And it's not that big, but it's, it's a, it's a bigger house. Someone today would be like, wow, that's a, you know, that's a nice looking house. But we think about the fact that there were at least 10 people, not to mention multiple people who would be helping them like maids and Mm -hmm. servants. And then it was a boarding, boarding house or boarding school for various boys that Mr. Austin was teaching. You can only imagine how crowded it was in there and how there was very Mm -hmm. little quiet. But what I love is Jane had since the moment of her birth, complete free access to her father's library. I mean, it was just always available to her. And yeah. you can see, I think, so clearly the, you know, the sharpness of her tongue and her wit and her intelligence. Um, and it was never repressed, you know. And eventually when she goes to in her life try and publish her own books, she's not um held back by her family. In fact, they're the ones championing her. So I think it's really extraordinary. Um, from a young age, you can see, you know, she's not being held back just because she's a woman. Maybe that was because they didn't, they couldn't keep track of her because there were so many kids in the house, whatever the reason, you know, and by the age of 11, she's writing, she's writing little plays and, um, little novellas and, and entertaining the family. And, and I think there's a testament to that when, and their commitment to seeing her as a serious writer. And at the age of 18, uh, or excuse me, 19, her dad gives her this portable writing desk, which was very expensive at the time. And again, her family wasn't terribly well off. They weren't destitute, but they were lower on the rungs. Um, and what so- exactly does a portable writing desk look like? Is it like a little slab of wood that you carry around with you to write? It's like a little case that has clasps think of like a little mini suitcase kind of and opens flat and there's a surface on which you can write uh underneath it you can open that and um we can we'll find a picture and um, post this uh and you can store things underneath you can keep your ink and quills and um it's really cool and it's very handy and it was in fact the thing that mattered most to her in her entire life she never sold it she never got rid of it she always wrote on it so it's extraordinary that we have the actual, and that's that desk exists still. We have that desk. Um, that's so cool. So cool. I, one of my one in preparation for this, I was watching a documentary by one of my favorite historians, Dr. Lucy Worsley. If you don't know her, please watch everything she's ever done. Um, she's incredible, and she, I just love the way she was sitting at the writing desk, and she talked about how it was practically a place of pilgrimage for Austinian fans, and you could see that being the case. It was such a 
even over video, it was such a compelling object. Um, yeah. And so, and you know, that's where she wrote about all these people that we love and and all of that. So yeah, so she grew up in this very bustling household. I'm sure it was very busy. They had animals that they kept. Her father, like I said, was also a farmer, and I'm sure Jane hated that. And they had a garden, but I'm sure she had to get to it. There was a, a we have a lot of her letters, and there was a bit where she was mentioning how happy she was that there was a dairy maid coming. Um, so that was the childhood. You know, it's not, she wasn't a Bennett sister. She lived a slightly more practical life. And, and I think it's so, it's so interesting to see the difference and, and, but always understanding where you stand in society. I think that's something her writing always conveys is there's such a clear sense of one's own social standing and how it relates to the rest. You know what I mean? And I'm sure she got that at a young age, but she loved to listen to music and play music. She loved to read and she loved dancing. She walked constantly everywhere. I feel like we always see very funny dramatized videos of, or like clips of all of the um, Austin heroines walking everywhere. But, you know, that was, that was a very practical mode of transportation at the time. And also Jane's family couldn't afford a carriage. So Oh yeah, and it's like the equivalent of a long shower. It's a good place to clear your head. And because it's England, it could have literally been the equivalent of a long shower. Yes. However, if it rains and you're on a walk, you die. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, at the time. To quote Mrs. Bennett, people do not die of colds. Um, But yes. yeah. So, and something really interesting happened. I want to talk about it. So her oldest brother, Edward, I think he was oldest, one of the brothers, Edward. Um, this is actually a really interesting social thing that would happen. Their parents gave him up for adoption. And before you go, oh no, that's horrible. The reason why is because there was a very wealthy couple, the Knights, who I believe didn't have any children. And this happened a lot. So someone that they knew or a family member, they would give up their child for adoption by those people. And that person would, you know, take that person's new name and would then have a very incredible standing in society. I believe you see this in Emma when, um, what's his name? The uh, son of the guy she wants to marry, not Knightley, but the guy she wants to marry, he was adopted mm. by his uncle and aunt, I think, or his aunt, right. and is going to inherit that and instead of um, inheriting um, his own father's uh, land and such. They could have done both, but a lot of the time it was in order to move them up in the social world. And so that happened with Jane's older brother, Edward. And he actually inherited this incredible house called Godmersham Park, amongst other livings. And he had 15,000 pounds a year, which for those of us who have seen Pride and Prejudice or read Pride and Prejudice as many times as I'm sure the two of us have, (laughs) you know, Mr. Darcy himself only received 10,000 pounds a year. So 15,000 pounds a year is ridiculous. And so this was this incredible house, one of his livings he had. And um, that was one of Jane's brothers. And of course, that would never have been able to, you know, you never would have been able to have had that situation unless the parents were able to give him up. And so his last name changed. He became a knight. He was no longer, you know, an Austin. Um, I think one of her older brothers as well um, inherited an estate from like a great aunt or something. And he had to change his name in order to do that. But it was very common at the time. It wasn't like, Oh no, my name. It was like, Oh, fantastic. I have all this money suddenly. Um, Yeah. 
So, and Jane would go and stay there a couple of times, which is really interesting. And she would stay there for a long time. And what's interesting is you get to see a bit of Jane's own um, understanding of her social standing and her lack of funds. And she wrote about worrying about being able to tip the servants well, Mm. Um, which is, you can just imagine she's in her brother's house and, you know, but She's so concerned about money. She can't even necessarily comfortably exist there. She's always worrying about making sure she's taking care of the servants, although they're not necessarily hers. And yeah, so, and one of the things is when she was there, she was kind of hired in, if you will, and she was meant to take care of um, his kids. And and one of the things that they would do is they would they would put on plays and act out plays and and various things. And um, I will refer everyone again to the documentary by Dr. Lucy Worsley because she does act out a bit of one of Jane's plays called The Visit, which I have since read and is hysterical. It was published around, not published, it was written around 1788. Um, Jane's getting a taste of that world that we end up seeing so frequently in her writing, but she's doing it as an outsider. So in around 1801, they left Steventon and they relocated to Bath, which she ended up hating, which is funny because you see it in her novels. They always hate Bath. She's tried to write and it was just a tricky time because her parents didn't have that much money. Her father had retired and and so they were trying to find a place to live. And it was just an interesting time for them. And I'm sure, again, so many of her impressions end up being set uh, in that time. She had a very busy social calendar that she didn't love that much. And <laughs> And so on, so which Same. I relate to. Same, <laughs> Same. yes. Yeah. Um, she in eighteen oh three sold a manuscript for some a novel called Susan, which ends up becoming Northanger Abbey. She sold it for around ten pounds, um, but that novel wasn't even published in her lifetime. So, first little disappointment. Mm. Fortunately, mm-hmm. um, and. So they continued existing. Jane continued, you know, writing these incredible letters back and forth to her favorite sister, Cassandra. And we have so many of them, thanks to Project Gutenberg, they've actually been transcribed, which is fantastic. And um, something I love is, is, you know, you can see the evolution of the writer. It's these little one-liners that she has that I love and that clearly show she's a little bit young in her writing. Um, Her tone and her voice are consistent. She never loses that, but I think she becomes more mature in her use of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So for the couple of lines that she has um, for Edward V, all she says is, this unfortunate prince lived so little a while that nobody had time to draw his picture. So I, I just appreciate how that voice was always there. But clearly she's writing it from a younger perspective, whereas you see in her later works that becomes expanded and, and it grows. And so she's always very quippy. And and we see, you know, our great heroine, Elizabeth Bennett, making a lot of phenomenal one-liners about, you know, mm-hmm. the, I don't know, and to the face of all of the people that she probably shouldn't be saying those things to, which you can imagine Jane herself doing um, mm-hmm. in her own life. But I think it's interesting to see how young she was when it started and also how it ends up maturing later. And so I imagine if we ended up reading Susan, 
before we ended up being able to read what it became, which is Northanger Abbey, we would see a similar kind of expansion of her, of herself and of her writings. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I love that. And, and so I think what's interesting is, you know, there's her family situation got worse and worse and worse in 1805. Her father died probably from malaria, which no one thinks about. I feel like no one thinks about people dying from malaria back then, but they did a lot. Mm-hmm. Her dad probably did. And they were, that left Jane and her mom and her sister entirely reliant on the men in her family, which were her brothers um, and on their charity, um, which is a terrible situation to find yourself in. And they, you know, moved further and further down the social ladder. Mm-hmm. And in about a year later, her brother, Frank, who's in the Navy, moves um, Jane and Cassandra and their mom to Southampton, where he's stationed. And they live with his wife um, while he's, you know, away serving at sea. And she kind of hates it there, which is really funny. Um, and then a couple of years later, her brother, Edward, the one who was adopted by that family, um, they end up unfortunately his wife dies. And so he moves his mom and sister and other sister to not where he actually lives, but close to where he lives at Chawton house, which is another one of his houses. And they live in, they don't live in Chawton house, which is this like beautiful, I believe it's like a Tudor manor, but they live in the bailiff's house, which is down the road, but that's the house you can go visit now where if you wanted to go visit like Jane Austen's home, that's the one you would visit. Um, which so is really nice in general ish her brothers do exactly what's expected of them okay if they had turned away their mother and their two unmade ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Married sisters, that would have been, in, I mean, extremely frowned upon. That would have been horrible. Even in, you know, Sense and Sensibility, um, the the sisters are turned out unfairly, you know, by their brother and his awful wife, but they're still taken care of to a degree, just at a lesser extent than they would, you would have hoped or what the father intended. But mm-hmm. he, even in his, you know, efforts, they never once thought of not giving them any money. They just thought of giving them less and less and less. So, right. which is, you know, horrible, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. So they live, she's living in a slightly more comfortable life than they had been. So they had a period of time where, you know, they moved out of Steventon and then they were in Bath and then they moved kind of 
around and her father dies and then they have to go to Southampton. But now she's kind of back in the country near, not far from where she grew up and living a slightly more comfortable lifestyle because her brother is really, really wealthy. Mm -hmm. Um, So even his house that he's casting off is, is a, is a pretty good one. And one of the things I think what's interesting is um, we end up seeing, I imagine Jane got to slightly live the lifestyle that she writes about. She gets up early and plays the piano. She prepares tea for everyone around 9am. And then, you know, she goes around making small house calls and, and then she wrote all day. She really had the time finally to really write. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we end up seeing her brother helped a lot to push forward her writing. Her father was the one who first tried to get um, her writing published. And then after his death, his, one of her brothers worked as well. God, it's just horrible when you imagine the amount of money she could have made had she been a man or in any other time. But she, in 1811, Sense and Sensibility was published. She made 140 pounds and that was it. Mm. She sold the rights to Pride and Prejudice around for around the same amount, but it became the runaway hit and the publisher made three times the amount she made in that first publication. And they had no obligation to give her any of that money. Um, So they didn't. No, of course not. And I will say none of this was ever published using her name. Yeah. I was just going to ask that. Mm -hmm. So she didn't have the, local notoriety either no not at all um i'm i believe it was published under like a lady author or something like that it wasn't ever published um oh no yeah published by a lady um (laughs) it's like a circus attraction i know i know published by a woman come read oh my god come read imagine she can write see what um what they do (laughs) yeah but i think she understood that she got ripped off because she then you know tries to see another publisher about her next work um and for emma which was one of her more mature novels Mm -hmm. um which is an incredible i love emma um because emma's the worst do you know what i mean like I don't I, love I Emma. Do. I've complained to you about the movie adaptation That's true. and her being the worst. But I love that she's the worst because every other novel I've ever read of the time period, the woman's always this idyllic human being who may be slightly witty or whatever, but Emma's just like a garbage human being. Oh, absolutely. And that's exciting because the woman was allowed to be imperfect. You know, Emma is entirely separate from Jane. They grew up very differently in very different households, living very different lives. Mm -hmm. And yet she's allowed a lot of things that you can imagine Jane would have liked to have been allowed. And again, this is probably me putting that on Jane, whatever, but it, she's allowed a license by being wealthier. She's allowed this freedom um, and she can be derisive toward companions she doesn't want to be around, and she can be haughty, and she can be cruel, and she can learn from all of those things. And it's accepted, and her learning is okay because she is a woman of that standing, mm-hmm. because there's a place where she can fall and be pushed back up. Whereas a woman mm-hmm. who's of a lower standing, 
you know, they don't have that underneath them. There's no net to catch them necessarily. And I think Emma's allowed a lot of freedoms and I love seeing how she finds redemption. It's like Wuthering Heights. I know not Jane's novel, but like their only redemptive quality, Kathy and Heathcliff or whatever, is like the fact that they're into each other. Do you know what I mean, though? I do know. I do know what you mean. Yes. The Kate Bush song is playing in my head. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. But that's the thing with Emma is like she and Knightley, it almost in and of itself does redeem her. And you also know that she's going to continue that process long after the book is over. Yes, you hope. My impassioned defense of Emma, even though she is the worst. I think there's something lovely about the characters because it seems like it's coming from the mind of someone who is kind. That Mm. is also me putting something that I absolutely don't know about Jane Austen on her because I like her books, but... Welcome to history. Welcome. You're a historian now. You've done it. (laughs) Yes, finally. But it does seem like the aim of this story is to say, is to A, point out the imbalance of people who have privilege and the ability to learn in the way that you described, but also the hope that people can change for the better and Mm -hmm. the hope that this woman learns from her actions and has enough empathy and heart to understand that she was wrong in the way that she behaved and to see moving forward why she might not do the same thing again. So I do like that. Yeah. Despite the fact that she's a little little snooty snoot. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're right. I think it's, it's, I think if you didn't necessarily know and you read all of those books, you'd know that Emma was written later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it takes a mature author to write outside of their own perspective as well. I agree. I agree completely. And yeah, so Emma, you know, she was so excited about Emma being published. But because of she'd been burned with Pride and Prejudice, she wanted to self-publish, which means that she took all the risk up front but would make more money moving forward. And unfortunately, none of those later books that she tried to self-publish made like any money, which is just the worst. It really is. And so throughout her entire lifetime, she only made just over 650 pounds from her publications, which gave her an immense amount of economic freedom that she never had before. That's no small sum, but when we consider... Jane Austen, you know, she is an, a, a, such a prominent part of our lexicon. She is, she is everywhere all the time and we yeah. all have to read her books or we choose to read them and enjoy them. And the movies are constantly being redone. And, you know, she is such a part of the social consciousness. And to think that that was all she made, it's mm-hmm. just heartbreaking. And it's not a story we don't hear, you know, we hear that. We see that happening with women a lot and it's just hate everyone <laughs> in conclusion <laughs> in conclusion god damn it um <laughs> so how i don't i'm i don't know if i'm jumping ahead in your notes but Tell how me. did how did her work become so widespread then post-mortem oh chloe what a wonderful question um uh, that's what i'm here for <laughs> her family and her last publisher worked to public publish them um her brother actually in like 1817 
December of 1817. I Spoiler alert, Jane dies, unfortunately, July of 1817. Um, but in December of that year, her, her brother in a note. Wait, wait, wait. Um, cause of death? Cause of death known? Uh, cause of death. Mo- uh, they're saying it could be like Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm, okay. Uh, she, you know, she just became ill. I, I can talk about that. She and her sister went to Winchester to see a doctor to help her with this illness. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately she never left. And in July of 1817, she passed away and mm. she was buried in Winchester cathedral where she is still buried to this day. Um, but yeah, so she dies and then what becomes of her great work? So her family arranges to have persuasion in Northanger Abbey as a set, which they publish and in it, her brother, Henry actually names her as the author they sold quite a few of those books, but all of her novels, she only published six novels. Mm-hmm. How insane is that? Six. And look at what they've done. I mean, it's six novels. Um, by the 1820s, the, they were out of print, but people were reading them in their homes. You know, books were not so, books were precious commodities even then in the ni- early 19th century. So mm-hmm. you would keep the book and you would circulate it amongst friends or family. Um and then around 1832, a man named Richard Bentley purchased the copyrights to all of her novels and then published them together in a series. Mm-hmm. And he, in like 1833, did that, this like collected works. And then her books have been like constantly in print since then, literally. Is there any reason why he was able to make them so much more widespread than her family or her publisher were able to? Do you know, I'm not, I haven't really read too much about that. And I was curious about that. I can, I can imagine it's because she had been growing in popularity Mm. in private. Yeah. You know, people, they had been out for longer. People were reading them. It's not like they were ever, here's the thing. When I say they were out of print, I mean, people weren't publishing new copies of them, but that has nothing to do with the copies that were already done. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, people people loved Jane from a young age or you know, early in that time. And then there was nothing to suggest she was any different from the other female authors of the time. Right. Except the fact that people who read them knew there was something special. But if you were just hearing about another woman writing a book, you're like, oh, whatever. They are all the same. Right. And were the other women publishing under their own names or was it like Another, by another woman. <laughs> um, I think they just, not, not necessarily their own names, maybe nom de plumes or, you know, right. Okay. Or anonymous. I, I think the Bronte sisters, um, I think at least Charlotte published Jane Eyre under anonymous. So does, does the family estate no. maintain any of that wealth or the guy who bought the copyright does? He did, but I believe they're public domain. Ah, that's why there are so many versions of them. Right. They don't have to buy rights, so it's cheaper to do. Love that. You know what just entered public domain? Do you Tell know what just entered that? Great Gatsby. I guarantee Ooh. you we will see a bunch of weird versions of Gatsby in the coming few years. I simply cannot wait. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay. So, Jane. One yeah. thing I want to mention in her on her lovely... Uh, gravestone, which is in the cathedral. Mm -hmm. They talk about the benevolence of her heart and the sweetness of her temper, blah, blah, blah. But they do say, and the extraordinary endowments of her mind. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. And I think it's so lovely because 
how many women could have hoped for a dedication such as that one that, you know, actually complimented her mind. And I think it's, I think it's really lovely and special and yeah. And in closing, I wanted to read to you a bit of some of the letters she wrote mostly to her sister. Mm -hmm. I think they're funny. (laughs) Um, There's this bit she has. It's January 8th, 1799 to her sister Cassandra. I do not think I was very much in request. They're at a party, I think. And no one's asking her to dance. I do not think I was very much in request. People were rather apt not not to ask me till they could not help it. One's consequence, you know, varies so much without any particular reason. There was one gentleman, an officer of the Cheshire, a very good looking young man who I was told wanted very much to be introduced to me. But as he did not want it quite enough to take trouble in affecting it, we could never bring it about. Oh, my gosh. She's a queen. If that doesn't relate to modern day, I don't know what does. I don't know what does. And then this is rather horrible, but yet very funny. At the same time, in a letter to, again, Cassandra, she goes, Mrs. Hall of Sherborne was brought to bed yesterday of a dead child some weeks before she expected, owing to a fright. I suppose she happened unawares to look at her husband. Oh, stop. Yeah. She did not. She did. (laughs) (laughs) She did. Oh, my God. Oh, it's incredible. Um, it's horrible. And yet... Yeah, I know. It's, you know, the, sometimes the you worst. find humor in, in sadness. It's just like the worst thing she could have said. And yet it's so good. To her sister, at least. Yeah, no, it's just... It's only to Cassandra, who is, right. who is her confidant, her love, her whatever. Yeah. Oh, so bad. Um, okay, and then this is a letter about one of her books being published um, about Pride and Prejudice. This is Friday, January 29th of 1813. I want to tell you I have got my own darling child from London, the book. Miss B dined with us on the very day of the book's coming, and in the evening we fairly set at it and read half the first volume to her. She was amused, poor soul. That she could not help, you know, with two such people to lead the way. But she really does seem to admire Elizabeth. I must confess that I think her as delightful a creature as ever appeared in print, and how I shall be able to tolerate those who do not like her, at least, I do not know. (laughs) The second volume is shorter than I could wish, but the difference is not so much in reality as in look, there being a larger proportion of narrative in that part. I have lopped and cropped so successfully, however, that I imagine it must be rather shorter than Sense and Sensibility altogether. Now... I will try and write of something else. And then I think a really important thing, and and I didn't, I I hope you all noticed that I didn't mention anything about men in her life because that was the least important thing about her. (laughs) But I do want to mention she did have two significant men in her life. One never was able to propose because she was not deemed as, you know, that, desirable. She wasn't very wealthy. And I think at the time she was, God help her, 21. Um, And then she was proposed to and had accepted initially when she was like 27, a young 21-year-old guy. But then the next morning um, changed her mind. And in a letter to her niece, Fanny, I believe in 1814, 
she's giving her really beautiful and compelling advice about whether or not Fanny should accept the hand of this one person or another. And she says, anything is to be preferred or endured rather than marrying without affection. So she did not love the 21 year old. No, I think she, she accepted him when he initially proposed. And then what was it in the documentary that Dr. Worsley did? She mentioned he wasn't particularly good at conversation. So she probably turned him down. You know what, though? That's incredibly important for a woman. It couldn't be more. I agree. I mean, it's every the basis of the romance in all of her books is witty banter. Yes, 100 percent. It's it's the meeting of two intelligent minds that makes the connection so exciting. So to be with someone who doesn't have that, I can imagine, would just be horrifying. Yes. Not worth her loss of freedom. For someone so intelligent. Yeah. I can't quite imagine. So yeah, I think it's it's interesting that we have such a legacy of hers and yet, you know, she herself never experienced some of those same interactions. And yes, she did, but she also didn't. Mm-hmm. And I think what I love is there, I can't really think of any person who offered such an exquisite commentary on the land of gentry of that time. I mean, we know, I feel like we understand so much about what actually was happening at that time because of Jane. Yes, you know, we can read how someone maybe spoke or, you know, we can read their letters to each other, but I feel like it's so difficult to actually understand what it would have been like to live during that time period. And she gives us such a window into it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we all became obsessed with it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I love it. I mean, not not everyone. Let me clarify. You and I both grew up reading those books, yeah. <laughs> I don't understand if I can be people's friends if they don't like Jane Austen. Ooh, passed the test. Yeah. I made it. <laughs> but we knew that a long time ago. <laughs> this is true. But I feel like no one really knows about her actual life. She died when she was 41. She was so young. As someone who was one of those young women obsessed with that time period in those novels, I actually didn't know most of this information. So I am someone who enjoyed this greatly. Oh, good. I'm glad. And I think it's because her books live so large that we have her voice so clearly that, oh, you know, we know who she is, but we don't know her life. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, and I just... Least, at least in my education, I don't think I was ever taught either any of her books or her life i don't think no well she's a lady so better late than never exactly so that's jane um, yay jane yay jane we love jane and love you girly she's the best <laughs> um yeah so we'll post our pictures on the gram historically badass broads on instagram that is us and I do want to say I'm just so excited that we are still having our podcast and and that everyone's been listening and you know let us know if you have any questions and if you want to hear of a particular person or even if you don't know of a particular person but you're like is there someone really random from this time of this country like DM us let us know because I want to absolutely I want to find out you know I want to learn more about people I don't necessarily know about and I'm sure you know Chloe you do too. 
Um, I do definitely. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing every week. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.